Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Welcome, everybody. It is Friday. It is 1 o'clock, and uh, as you know, it just means the Veteran Founder Podcast is happening right now. Uh, I am your host, Josh Carter, and with me this week back is Carmen. Welcome back, Carmen. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. We missed you so badly. Uh, I'm glad to be back. But but I'm I'm hearing that you uh, had a great time in Europe, so I'm I glad did. you did. I did. It was a great experience. Yeah. So for those that are unfamiliar with the show, uh, every week we bring in amazing founders that uh, have military backgrounds, whether they are veterans or military spouse, to come in and tell us about their experience, uh, what they've done, some lessons learned. And then, uh, you know, this week we have an amazing uh, entrepreneur, John Gossard, who is uh, was part of Ride Scout, if you folks remember that. Now uh, we he's doing a, a great, it's a great platform where you can actually do a hashtag and, and give to charity, and we're going to have John talk a lot about that. So uh, let's bring him in, shall we, Carmen? Let's do that. Hi, John. John. Welcome to the program. Welcome, hey, John. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about this, how technology and uh, and specifically around charity, uh, and you guys have seemed to figure this piece out. Uh, Good World is the, the name of the company, right? That's correct. Yeah, Good World. Um, Goodworld.me uh, is the is the website, but really we operate uh, kind of behind uh, the, the social media content and platforms of our thousands of charity partners. So we try to stay in the background and empower uh, them to allow their donors to connect with them at the place that they're inspired, specifically inside those social media streams. And I love how seamless it is. So we're going to get a lot. We're going to dive right into that. But I want to know, and our listeners want to know more about John. And so we want to hear a little bit more about your military background, first and foremost. So tell me a little bit about what branch you served in, first of all, and then sort of what was the decision process for you that led you into the military? Uh, there wasn't really. I was in the Army. Uh, I was in the Army for about 22 years uh, before I retired, uh, and there there wasn't much of a decision. I I got into to Boston College, which was the place that I really wanted to, to go to school, and we didn't have the, the resources uh, to, to send me there, and I certainly didn't have the resources to send myself there. I applied for a bunch of scholarships and grants, and the only ones that came back of any meaning were, uh, were related to the military. So, I mean, I couldn't spell army. Uh, and I, and I thought, and I had no desire to go into it. In fact, I was, I was a terrible, uh, ROTC cadet because, uh, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. I saw it as a means to an end. I fully intended to join the reserves and do one week in a month and, and two weeks of summer for eight years until my commitment was done and, and walk away from it. I ended up going active duty because I think by the time I was a senior at Boston College, I realized that I really wasn't qualified to, to do much. And I started, you know, I was learning more about the Army and going through the, the RTC process. And I, you know, it, it dawned on me that, that they were going to give me, you know, 42 people or something on day one uh, to be in charge of. You could work for decades in the civilian sector to get, a, you know, just a couple of people reporting to you. Uh, they were going to pay me, you know, a, a decent wage, uh, at least pay me and give me a job right out of college. Uh, give me a little bit of experience, get the opportunity maybe to travel a little bit, uh, you know, blow some things up maybe even uh, in a training environment. We were just coming out of the Gulf War, so it looked like, uh, um, you know, a relatively uh, predictable environment to walk into. And, uh, and it would also make my commitment finish in four years as opposed to eight. So my new plan uh, when I graduated from BC was to, you know, to, to go in and do four years active duty and uh, and then you know get on with my life with this little bit of uh, of experience and a little bit of ink on my uh, on my CV. But I did I did not do that. I remember having the conversation with my wife sometime in year seven or eight in Europe and going, weren't we supposed to get out of this and do something else? <laughs> um, but we did not. We did how, not. And how it was, they loop uh, you it was in? Good experience. Then. So what did you study in in uh, Boston College? 
Uh, I had, this is my kids know the story. I had five majors. I have a son at Boston College right now. In fact, I have three sons in Boston at college right now. But uh, uh, at BC, I had five majors. And uh, the political science major that I graduated with was only because when I was thinking about changing that major, I was told by my advisor that I had passed the point where you can change a major. So I cycled through everything. I did not, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to study. Everything that I moved into, I was, I, I wasn't a great student as an undergrad, um, but I ended up graduating with a political science major. Um, and I don't know how much I, I took a lot away from, from Boston college. I'm very loyal to the institution. Uh, it was a great experience, but academically, I don't think, uh, I think there were many opportunities that I missed at Boston College because I didn't know what I wanted to do and my, you know, my heart wasn't in it. Uh, I tried to make up for that uh, at grad school and I've been trying to make up for it ever since, honestly. I think that's a that's a lot of folks' experience, right? I think a lot yes. of people that go to college or, or whether they're really young and they go through the military like I do, come back and get a little older and feel as though they didn't take advantage of all the opportunities that were presented to them. So I don't feel like that's unique. But I, what I love is that uh, you, know, you, you walk out of Boston College with this master's and now you're armed with you know, some, some sort of credibility uh, with this amazing institution to move on into your career. Right. No, I mean, uh, I'm very thankful to, you know, BC is a great brand and uh, a great network, great family. Uh, and again, you know, I love the fact that one of my sons uh, has chosen there. There's uh, everything about, I have not, not a bad word to say about Boston college who just, uh, your Boston college Eagles beat Wake last night on the road to start the season at three and zero. just in case you want to take a sports <laughs> break here. But, uh, that was, you know, that was my undergraduate degree. And, you know, I, I kind of put that aside for, for nine or 10 years. And then it was the military that offered me the opportunity to go back to grad school. I mean, they sent me to Georgetown, uh, and that's, uh, specifically because I was, uh, I was being groomed to, uh, be an assistant professor at West Point. So I went to Georgetown, I did my grad work and it was at West Point teaching that I met, um, you know, the, the founding team, the other three guys that we launched Stride Scout with. What did you do your grad work in? My grad work was in public policy and economics uh, at Georgetown. And in fact, uh, I'm an adjunct at Georgetown now. I teach uh, a class a semester. Lately, I've been teaching a counterterrorism course, but I've taught uh, economics, counterterrorism, stability operations. That's, That's amazing. great. So you, you, when you spent all this time in the, in the Army, was it mainly spent teaching or giving back to, to the, the knowledge that you had been given? Or what other things were you doing during your time in the Army? I didn't have a lot of knowledge to give in the first half of my career, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, I came in and I was a platoon leader. Uh, I was an XO, you know, company XO. I was a specialty platoon leader. I mean, I was in the, I was in the dirt. I spent uh, a ton of time you know, with soldiers deployed either in the field locally or, uh, or in tactical theaters. I, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time, uh, downrange as a Lieutenant at, uh, my first time was at Fort Carson, Colorado. We just spent a lot of time in the field training for, uh, you know, a Korean conflict that that was never going to happen. Um, but then, you know, things changed relatively quickly. We, uh, we deployed to Kuwait very quickly, I think in 93, very soon after I got there, uh, because uh, there was some kind of saber rattling and movement of, of tanks on the border of Saudi. And so you know, we, we jumped out there, uh, did a big exercise, visible exercise with the Kuwaitis. Uh, and then I, you know, I came back and Bosnia kicked off. Uh, we were in Macedonia and Bosnia, Kosovo. Uh, you know, I spent much of 99 in Kosovo when that first uh, kicked off. Uh, and that really took me all the way up uh, through company command and coming back to the United States and uh, in, I guess, the, the summer of 99, maybe. Uh, and I think that's when, uh, no, maybe it was the summer of 2000. That's when I started uh, at Georgetown. I spent two years there getting my master's uh, at Georgetown, and then I, I moved on to West Point to teach. Um, and then 9-11 happened uh, during that period of time, at, uh, you know, at West Point in grad school, and uh, and then all bets were off. I you know, went to CGSC and moved back into the tactical formations and, you know, did my XO and S3 time at the battalion level as a uh, combined arms battalion uh, XO and, and three and brigade chief of staff. And we, you know, I was in Sadr City. I was in 
uh, Baghdad. I was in Bakaba uh, when Zarqawi, the head of uh, the number two of Al-Qaeda and uh, the head of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, was killed uh, on our watch in Bakaba uh, in 05. Uh, so that whole period, kind of post 9-11, uh, I spent mostly uh, forward deployed until we came back to D.C. in, in 09. My last point was about 17 months. Wow. You know, I, I ask every week, uh, I have been asking every week, there's this thing that happens in everybody's military career that sort of switches that, that, switches that light on for everybody, that sort of doesn't really define who they are, but it really changes who they, they become. When do you think in the military that moment was for you? What do you think that defining moment was? He finally said, "This is this is when I grow up. This is when I've I've figured out. This is how I'm going to um, to grow." That's a great question. It is a great question. I mean, as soon as that happens, I'll tell you. But uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't. I, that never happened to me. I, yeah. I I made the cho- I made a couple of choices that that ended up, there was no plan to lead me to where I'm sitting right now, but I made a couple of choices that ended up incidentally putting me in the position to, um, you know, to get out of the military and, and start the, this life, whatever this life is that I'm leading right now. Um, I mean, the first thing was when we came out of Sadr City at the beginning of 09, so that was a 17th month deployment, Battle of City, it was, uh, it was a tough deployment. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, you know, it was stressful. I also happened to be working uh, directly and, and kind of one boss up uh, at the division level, a brigade commander for a, a tough situation, uh, a lot of stress, and was not happy. Um, and then I was get, I got picked up for command, uh, you know, for higher command while I was still out there. And so I think all of this was weighing on me. It's like, okay, we're gonna just keep going. Like it never stops. You deploy, you know, you go through come back, reset for a couple of weeks, and it's like right back at it. And it was, it was weighing on me that I just, I was never home. Whether I was deployed or not, I was never home. And there was always, you know, just a lot of stress. And so I tried for the first time to take a step back. I mean, I'd always been, you know, climbing over everybody's back to get the, you know, the best job and, and to be on top, like, like many of my peers. And this was the first time I said, I'm going to you know, make a deliberate decision uh, my wife and I talked about it. I, I, I turned down command and it was, uh, I mean, I got called lots of things. I got called a quitter by, by the division commander to my face. Like when he made me sign my, he made me sign the deck, uh, the declination form uh, in his office and he called me a quitter. So oh, I got man. a two star general, you know, calling me a quitter. So, uh, it was not easy, but, uh, but I made that decision. And of course now the next thing they're going to do, they're going to make me, you know, some chogue staff guy, uh, you know, in Korea or, or Polk or, you know, pick the worst spot to punish me for that. So I called in a favor. I called back to the social department at West Point where I taught and I said, Hey, they're going to, they're going to find the worst possible job for me because I, I've turned down command. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you come out on the, on the, on the list, national list. So, uh, you know, they, they connected me with secretary Vickers with, with Mike Vickers, who at that time was, uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, uh, you know, the, the SOCOM Service Secretary. Uh, and I, I sat down with him in, in D.C., and he gave me a job. Uh, he gave me a great job. And so I was the Deputy Director for Special Operations and Counterterrorism Policy from '09 to uh, until I got out. And, uh, and it was a great job because it was relevant, so I wasn't going to be in, in some irrelevant position where I'm being punished. I certainly wasn't going to get all the way out before I retired because the net present value of my pension was such that it'd be ridiculous to get out at, you know, 15 years. Right. Um, and so this gave me a way, I guess at this point, it's probably more like 17 years or 18 years. So I was, you know, planning on just doing this for a couple of years and getting out. I ended up staying a uh, long past. I got caught up again. I was in a, I was in a great job. I was spending a lot of time in Pakistan and Yemen and East Africa and, you know, we were, we were doing the Lord's work. We were working on the things that you were reading about uh, in the paper. And it was very uh, intoxicating in many ways. And so it took me another five or six years to realize that the deliberate decision I made in, in walking away from, you know, kind of the tactical green tab army, uh, I just got sucked into something else. You know, I, I just ran to, the, ran to the guns, ran to the bright lights again. And, of course, nobody can do this job but me. 
And then all these like highly sensitive compartment programs, national programs, working with the interagency, uh, spending a lot more time in civilian clothes than I was in uh, in uniform. And I got caught up in that. And before I knew it, you know, it's it's 2012, and I'm spending as much, if not more, time away from home than I was when I was when I was deployed. Uh, only now in kind of more of a uh, civilian capacity around the world. Uh, so I had to to reset again and think about. Uh, what do I really want to do? And I don't know that I would have thought about that again if it hadn't been for, you know, kind of events happening around me. Uh, and one of those events was, you know, the guys that I taught at West Point with, they had this idea for a tech startup uh, that was back then not even called Ride Scout. Uh, they're going to cringe if anybody, if they ever hear this. <laughs> they, they, they like to disavow that this was ever their name, but it was originally called Going My Way. Going My Way, I love it. Which is not, which is not a dating app, even though it sounds like that. Um, but anyway, you know, they had this idea. And for me, it wasn't about the idea. It wasn't about the tech uh, startup, whatever. You know, although I was dealing with, in my professional life, probably bleeding edge technology, the likes that, you know, nobody had but us. You know, on my personal side, I was still probably using a flip phone uh, in, in 2012. And I had zero social media profile uh, for professional reasons. But also, I didn't really understand how it worked. And this is you know, the, the environment that they were trying to start a company in. And uh, I, I think more than, than the lure of that, it was maybe this is a way that I can take some time to figure out what I want to do. Because it, it just dawned me. I was in Pakistan when I finally made the decision uh, that I was going to, I was going to get out, retire and, and work with these guys. And I, I assumed it would fail, but I figured it would give me like six months to figure out whether or not, uh, or what it is that I wanted to do next, Yeah, you know, while we were trying to, to, to sort through this. And my wife's work credit was very supportive. I mean, she's, uh, she was retired military as well. She was a JAG for over 20 years and, wow. uh, and still an attorney, but so, so that was a little bit helpful because, you know, she was, she'd already gotten out by that point, but she was, uh, you know, working as a government employee and or a government attorney and bringing in, bringing in money. But, you know, we, we have four boys and they're going to Catholic high school and college. And, uh, it certainly wasn't enough. And now here I am saying, I got an idea. How about I, you know, quit my stable government job just as these kids are teeing up for college yeah. and I'm going to go work on the startup that doesn't pay anything. Like the timing's perfect. Right. Um, and you know, <laughs> she was, She's so very it's supportive. Like, it's like having a baby, and it's never a good time to start a startup until you like actually do it, right? I mean, timing's part of it, but you know, when you have a kid, it's just like you just go for it. Yeah, I, and I don't know if it was for me about going for it. I think it just became clear to me, and I don't know why. It just became clear to me that if I if I'm not doing this job, they're going to put somebody else in behind me that's going to do it and also do it well. Yeah. And it's just the more I looked to my left and right, it was just a young man's game, whether it was at the sit room in the White House or whether it was out forward, you know, in a place like Pakistan or Yemen or was it in the Pentagon, the people just kept getting younger and younger and I kept getting older and more tired. And I think I just, uh, and I realized I hadn't been home. I realized, you know, I hadn't really spent quality time with my four sons and, uh, you know, my wife at home and, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like an epiphany, like a light switch, but I think it became very clear to me, uh, over time. And then of course, same thing happened with ride scout. Yeah. Immediately, you know, as soon as we were raising money, I just got sucked into that. <laughs> and, you know, we went through a rough time or plenty of rough times sure. at ride scout. And I think only now in good world have I kind of figured out, uh, that balance, but it's just, so it's only taken me like 50 years to figure this out. It, it happens, man. We've been talking to John Gossard. He's the co-founder at good world. who's also one of the founders at ride scout. Uh, we're going to pay a quick bill. Is that cool, John? Absolutely. Go for it. CPA dudes where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the job done. Find them at cpadude.com slash startup radio. Thank you, Carmen, for that. We've been speaking with John Gossard. He is the co-founder at Good World, a uh, fintech startup that uh, essentially lowers the friction for you to be able to donate to your favorite char charity. And we're going to dive into that, but I want to learn a little bit about Ride Scout because you guys, you guys had a successful exit, which is you know, far and away more than what a lot of entrepreneurs get to do. And I really want to hear about that journey a little bit. You guys, you guys met at West Point and what was the sort of precipice behind starting this startup? 
Well, I was the I was the last of the four uh, to join. So the idea was Joseph Kopsers, who's by the way he's uh, he's running for Congress. He's got what election day here and. That's right. A couple of months. Yeah, right? we've had him at the uh, Patriot Boot Camp a, f- a few times. He's a good friend of the, right. of the organization. Right. So Joseph uh, had an idea. Joseph was working in the Pentagon. Uh, I forget exactly what he was doing at the Pentagon, but he was taking uh, public transportation every day from his house in Arlington to the Pentagon, which is also in Arlington. And, and he just kind of had an observation. I think this is where a lot of the most powerful startup ideas come from. It's not like a brilliant guy. You know, I think people envision like Elon Musk just like sits at some table alone in the dark and, and like I have the next idea. I mean, typically it's, it's much more banal than that. It's, it's smart people that just pay attention and they're, they're, they're observing things around them mm-hmm. that are where there's friction or, or things that were the margins too high or were, you know, things that can be disrupted. And they see an opportunity to improve people's experience. And anytime you have an opportunity to improve people's experience, in a large addressable market, that also happens to be an opportunity to, to make a lot of money uh, for both investors and, and for entrepreneurs. So Joseph was sitting at like a bus stop every morning watching like, like different flavors and colors of buses. He's seen the Dash and like the Circulator and the Metro bus go by, and they're all public transportation, but they're all on different applications. Like you got to get on the Dash app or the Circulator app or the Metro app. Uh, and so he's like flipping between them and he's seeing taxis go by. It was very early stage. Like, you know, Uber was still running just black cars at this point and Lyft was, was nowhere to be found. Um, but he was also seeing like cars drive by with just a person in it that he recognized. He didn't know who they were, but he knew they were in his neighborhood because he'd seen them around and they're just driving right by him on this bus stop. And he's thinking, these are all potential options, but I can't, I don't know how to, how to access them. Uh, and he was like, wouldn't it be great if there was just one like place that you could see all this? Uh, and he assumed that somebody had done it because it just seemed so intuitive to him. Uh, and after, you know, some research, he, he found out that it really wasn't. So that's where his vision was born. It was like, what if we could, uh, you know, find a place for all of your, your transportation options, all your ride options, public, private, and social, like maybe people that we both work at the Pentagon, or we both uh, teach at Georgetown, or we both graduated from Boston College, or we're Facebook friends. How could we have all those rides in one place for us where I can see what my best option is based on my preferences? Like maybe it's price, maybe it's time, maybe it's environment, maybe it's don't show me any public transportation because I don't want to be with the common folk, whatever your preferences are. Uh, and I could see those things and I could book them and pay for them and track them. Uh, in real time. It's a big idea. And we never quite got there. Um, you know, Don Rimmer City's brought us up before we got there. But it, it was a big idea. And uh, he came up with it. And he reached out to his old roommate and uh, and best friend and a guy that happened to also be teaching at West Point in that same small window that the four of us met each other, uh, Craig Cummings. And he reached out to Craig because Craig had gotten out of the Army uh, before 20. He's one of those guys that defied logic, economic <laughs> logic, and said, I've got an idea so big that I'm going to get out of the Army at 17 years, even though the net present value of my pension would tell me don't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, he, but he did have a, a, a big idea, and so he had already kind of dipped his toes into the entrepreneurial pool. So Joseph reached out to Craig, and Craig said, I think that's a great idea, and I'm going to give you a little bit of money. Uh, and they, you know, and they kind of declared themselves co-founders, and, and they started kind of sketching out the intellectual property and writing the white paper behind what would become Ride Scout. Then they reached out to Steve Carroll, who's another guy that we taught with at West Point, who was just getting out of the Army. And uh, and they reached out to me. I think they wanted, uh, they, with the three of those guys, they had plenty of philosopher kings. They had plenty of optimistic, you know, vision guys that wanted, like, stand up and knife hand and point to the horizon um, but what they needed was like uh, a pessimistic, angry, grumpy uh, numbers guy. Uh, and so, you know, they reached out to me and they said, hey, you know, <laughs> they said, I, I, know, need, I know a grumpy guy. <laughs> I, I know an angry, I know an angry, uh, mathematically inclined individual that we can that we can reach out to. So, awesome. uh, yeah, they, they, they reached out to me the first time they reached out to me. I was in Yemen and I ignored it. They were talking about apps and and. Like, I shit you not. They were talking about uh, in this in this 
Nipper email and this non-seeker email for I mean, the military guys know Nipper, uh, which I was checking probably, you know, every 10 days. Uh, they had SXSW. We're going to go to SXSW. And this tells you how unplugged I was or how unaware I was. <laughs> I'm like, what is SXSW? <laughs> uh, so, you know, like seven South Bys later, I'm, you know, I'm well-versed in it. But uh, I didn't know. But at the same time, I was kind of having a little bit of a, I was at a crossroads personally. I was at a crossroads professionally. And I was like, I don't know anything about tech. I don't know anything about being an entrepreneur. I certainly don't know anything about transportation, uh, you know, apps, smartphones, or social media. But I do know these three guys, uh, and I do know maybe it's time for me to think about doing something different. And so, you know, I, I did a little bit of research, and I'm like, oh, I got it. This thing's going to fail in six months, and then by then I'll have I'll have my next you know my next gig. And so uh, that didn't work out. We just kept raising money, kept raising money, and then we got acquired. So I read somewhere that you guys were really close to running out of cash uh, for Ride Scout. If you read that, if you read that, <laughs> then you then you just you're you're not you're not I'm not calling out your calling your integrity into question. But I think by read that you mean you may have listened to one of these other uh, podcasts. I've, yes, sir. I've done several of them. What I, I think <laughs> I think that the other three. Who you know, guys that I that, that we started Ride Scout with, who I love and adore, they don't like that story. Yeah, but but I tell it every time. You know what though? But here's here's the thing about that. You know, a lot of people they they get to be entre- they they try to this entrepreneur thing because they see the Elon Musk's or they see the Mark Zuckerberg's and they think this whole thing is this glamorous thing, but it's full of shit, right? You, it's not glamorous. It's dirty. It's uh, tough. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. So I think it's important to tell the the good with the bad. Right. Yeah, and I think those guys. Listen, the the three guys, uh, three other guys that the rest got with. These guys know that, and they wouldn't disagree with that at all. It's just that one. You know, it, it doesn't. The narrative of, you know, West Point guys, Army guys, vets. You know, against all odds, Ride Scout acquired by Daimler Mercedes. It's too good. It just wraps itself up in a bow, and it becomes this like inspirational light at the end of the tunnel for you know, struggling entrepreneurs that also happen to be veterans. Mm-hmm. But 99% of these guys, whether they're veterans or not, are going to fail. And that doesn't mean they're bad guys. Uh, it may not even mean that, that the idea isn't sound, although in most cases that's the case. The idea is not sound. But these guys, you know, Craig and Joseph and Steve, I mean, they would, they would agree with everything you just said, but – when we went on the victory lap of the speaking tour about, you know, Ride Scout getting acquired, the message has got to be veterans don't know how to fail. You know, it's just that grit and determination. Yeah. But if you don't have EBITDA, then, you know, especially in this capital market, we were in a little bit of a different situation in the capital market back then. You're, you're not going to make it. And, and I don't take anything away from the idea and the vision and the quality of those three guys and everybody else that we brought into the Ride Scout organization, it's all top notch, but it's all still 99% supposed to fail. What, what differentiated us most, it wasn't revenue, it wasn't users, because we hadn't hit anything close to slipstream on those two important things, which right. is, are, are probably the most important things. For us, it was timing. I mean, it really was. There was a, there was a couple of things that, that really helped us. Because we did. We were, I think the number was $719 we had in the bank <laughs> in April uh, of the year we were acquired. That's crazy. Uh, and I think it was September 2nd or 3rd, 5th something uh, of 14 that we were acquired. So that's how close. I mean, the, the, the conversations in April are around uh, at what point do we have to tell employees they can't come into work because we'll be in violation of federal law if right. we know that we can't pay payroll. I mean, you can't let an employee walk in the door on a day that you know you don't have the money to pay them for that day's of work or that day's work. Um, you know, when do you start calling investors and being like, "We're we're not going to make it"? Uh, and that you know that process started, and we had a, a particular uh, investor that uh, that that helped bridge us on terms that were very reflective of the situation we were in. Sure. And and that guy was out of his money for you know four months or less. And the return on that money was 
disproportionate <laughs> to the rest of the cap table, and it should have been. Yeah. And he did, and he did uh, great. But you know, we were we were very close to not making it there. And then when you look at the Daimler acquisition, uh, it was not it was not multiples of revenue because we were we sure. didn't have that. Uh, it was, you know, <laughs> what Daimler was, the, the biggest factor, I think, uh, in, in Daimler was there was an ocean between us and they were trying to do something similar in Europe and still are. Uh, and we had one of the things that, that Joseph is amazingly talented as, uh, is he turned ride scout, you know, kind of from the podium that he used into a blowfish. We looked a lot bigger than we were. And I think Daimler was worried from, you know, across the ocean that we were growing too big too quickly and that it was going to either be more expensive to buy us later or that we might be their competition by the time sure. they decided to launch something similar in the United States. And they said, hey, we can we can make a value buy now. Um, Interesting. But it was life-changing for us as a team. And, and they turned out to be great partners too. Yeah. And Movil North America, which is what RideScout became, is still yeah. up and running and doing great things out in, in Portland. So, which we're broadcasting from. So, uh, what what lessons did you take out of that? You guys, I mean, seven hundred nineteen dollars in the bank. What could you guys have, you know, seen this coming earlier? Could you guys have, you know, raised the red flag to your investors earlier? What what other lessons do you think you learned from that whole experience? It wasn't about that. I mean, that was really on on Craig's uh, side. He was, you know, he we were watching this coming from from far away and. You know, every minute of every day was spent to, to try to shore up that, that position. So it wasn't like, let's just sit back and hope right. something happens. Sure. Um, so I don't think there's much lesson. I mean, the, the, we were just we were trying very hard to raise money, and we got perilously close to the end of our ramp. I, I did the same thing at Goodworld. I mean, we, had, uh, we were down to five weeks of money left, oh, and wow. we had a, a Series A term sheet that at the end of diligence – you know, our, the, the partner that we were, that was leading, uh, turned out to be dishonest and we had to, I had to make the deliberate decision to walk away from the deal, knowing full well that it probably put the dagger in the company. Um, but we couldn't go forward, uh, for a lot of reasons we couldn't go forward. And so, you know, you're, you're deliberately making the decision that's going to destroy your own company. That was a, a tough few weeks. Uh, again, like, you know, everybody in the company and, uh, and my wife can certainly attest that was that was a low point at Good World, but when I was sitting on the curb on Wednesday night outside the office, you know, here at Good World, thinking like I just I just killed the company, uh, I'm like, man, I'm here again. And the more people I talk to, and the more life I live, and now I you know I, I speak to other entrepreneurs, and people are coming to me now for whatever misguided reason and asking for advice. Uh, that is the world. Yeah. You know, there, there are many, many like now big companies and big ideas. And, uh, that's just the world you live in. You can always see the end of your ramp. And, and, you know, I think Bezos and Amazon, it might be a little cliche, but there's something to that, you know, day one philosophy that they have. It's yeah. always day one. Yep. It's always day one. You're always this fledgling startup, even if you're Amazon, uh, you know, it, today is day one. What are we doing on day one? So, if you can embrace the fact that you're always going to be kind of one move away from annihilation, you know, if, you, if you've always got a little bit of a proverbial gun to your head and you can thrive in that environment, um, then maybe this is the, the, the space for you. Some people can't exist without that. And it's an I, interesting like perspective. Not, you, I'd like to not think that, that that's me, yeah. but I, I think it might, it might be me. I mean, I think some people <laughs> ask me, how did you, how did you go from, you know, like hang out in Yemen or Pakistan or, you know, the counterterrorism world or, you know, getting shot at in Sadr City and then all of a sudden now like you're sitting at a desk. And so maybe you have to trade in, you know, one uh, near-death experience for another. I, you know, I don't know if that's the case, but I definitely need to keep my heart rate up uh, during the day. Otherwise, I think 
you know, idle time is not good for me. You know, but I think you bring up an interesting parallel to that, though, is entrepreneurship being sort of this constant chaos, this sort of trying to control the chaos where being in places that are in the in forward deployed are, are sort of the same thing, right? You're trying to control the chaos in, in a way. So um, I get, I totally get the parallel, and I, I think that's a, a really good way to analyze what it's like being an entrepreneur and a founder that you're just one or two steps away from you know, stepping on a landmine. Or somebody else's. I mean, you know, you can, uh, and this really speaks to timing. So you said, like, what's the lesson you learn? And you try to walk me into the $719. Like, should you plan ahead a little bit more and, and know that that's coming? No, I mean, Craig Gummings is, you know, one of the smartest people I'll ever work with. And he saw that coming every day. And we were yeah. taking very active steps to avoid it. But, the, but days kept going by and people kept saying no. Uh, you know, about, uh, about funding and about capital. Um, the, the, the lesson that I took away was much more nuanced than, cause I mean, that's just, that's like blocking and tackling advice, like mm-hmm. plan ahead and contingency planning. All Yeah, no, we got all that. We, we, it, we do get that out of the military. Yeah. We don't get a lot of, uh, I, I think it's overstated the number of, of entrepreneurial skills that we actually get, uh, just for being in the military, but but, you know, the, the planning piece and the checklist, I mean, we definitely, prudence, uh, but prudence in the presence of audacity and initiative, that, that's certainly a military thing. But my biggest takeaway from the near-death experiences at, at Good World and at, uh, at Ride Scout is, is timing. These guys in Silicon Valley that tell you the, the number one thing I invest in is, is team, they're saying that because it's a, it's a talking point and it's a great... You know, it's a great thing to say in an interview. Or it's a great thing to say behind the podium. It's very inspiring. But they're full of shit and they know it. That's not that's not even close to the most important thing. Yeah. There there are a couple of very important things that are screening criteria. If you don't have an addressable market, if you if you haven't identified a problem that affects a decent size of addressable market, then what are we even talking about? I don't care what a great leader you are. I don't care that you know, about all your military sacrifice. I don't, I don't care how smart you are. If, if, if you're not addressing a problem that affects a lot of uh, people or, or a large swath of the market, then where's the opportunity to make money? Why do I care about that as an investor? And why do I care about that as a, as a, like a citizen of earth? You're not making my life any better. If you're, you know, affecting, uh, you know, a very small group of people, you're affecting like a, like a niche problem. So the problem's got to be a real problem. Your solution to that problem's got to be a real solution. So you got to check those two boxes. That's the screening criteria. Then we go, okay, if you meet those two criteria, now let's talk about these other things. We can talk about team and we can talk about, uh, you know, your technology, your product, all these things. But even then, team's not the most important thing. It's timing. If you have this amazing idea and this amazing solution to a real problem, I would, you know, eight days a week, take a C plus leader to, and, a, and an A plus problem and solution. Uh, you know, and sometimes the, the brilliance of the solution is around the technology. Other times it's, it's just kind of the hack or the idea, but the other way around, it doesn't work. If you, if you give me an A plus leader, but he's solving the problem of, you know, how the, you know, the bottom of your light switches always gets dusty. I've created this like little tool so you can dust on the inside of, you know, or something like that. I mean, it's not interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's worth thousands of dollars, not, you know, billions of dollars. Sure. So having a great leader in something like that is, is uninteresting. And then unfortunately you can have an A plus solution and problem and an A plus leadership team. If the timing's not right, if you're too early or too late, Unfortunately, it's not going to matter. And there's a lot of brilliant people with brilliant ideas that don't create unicorn companies because the timing didn't work for them. Right. And then there's also a lot of, you know, I would consider us very smart people with a, like a very good idea and a solution that we were working on at Ride Scout that the timing was perfect. I mean, in that capital market, you had way too much cash chasing way too few deals. And, uh, and we had a, an organization like Daimler Mercedes and uh, the automotive industry was stabbing each other in the back, trying to invest in transportation technologies across the spectrum. And uh, the timing was perfect for Definitely. us to, to get with Daimler. 
I want to I want to kind of back up a little bit. You're talking a lot about a, a lot of incredible things, and I'm sure listeners are taking notes feverishly. If not, they should be. Uh, what I want to talk yeah, a little yeah, bit about on Friday afternoon. That's yeah. what they're doing. I want to talk a little bit about the the idea behind Good World because um, you know there, there's no shortage of uh, you know um, solutions that are out there. To your point, you know uh, that are out there that can you can make a transaction via a hashtag. But why was charity so important for Good World to to sort of focus on a niche? So I met Gail Pfeiffer, the other half of the Good World founding team, uh, at 1776, which was the startup incubator that we launched Ride Scout out of, yep. uh, and she had uh, again you're seeing the pattern here. So the, the, the idea she already had. So you see what I do there? I just slide in. I find people with great ideas, and I'm like, hey, you need me on the team so I can you know, suck you off need, on the brilliance. Somebody, somebody who's angry and likes numbers. Exactly, right. So, uh, so Dale had this great idea on a laptop and an intern, and you know, we didn't know each other well. I was always running around you know, trying to, to work these Ride Scout deals. But while we were going through diligence, uh, with Daimler, with German bankers, uh, I started sitting down with Dale, like, I don't know, every week or so, and, and listening to her talk through this idea and giving her some advice about how to put some corporate governance around it, how to put some, uh, you know, put a financial instrument around it, just some things that, uh, that she just didn't have the, she wasn't, she wasn't particularly, uh, you know, experienced in. Uh, and I just thought her idea was so good that, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to help. I wanted to offer, uh, some advice. And I was trying to say like, you know, here are 10 things you need to do. And these are the order I think you need to do it. And, and the more I talked to her and the more I thought about this idea of being able to, to make payments in the place where you're actually inspired when you're served the content, which typically is mobile and social, it just, it was almost keeping me up at night. It was just, I thought this is, has, has something uh, that could affect not just charitable giving vertical, which is where her, you know, her passion was and, and her first idea was, but I'm like, this could affect the way we pay for things in general. And so I was really excited about it. And, and, you know, finally I was able to, uh, divulge that we were, that it looked like the acquisition was going to go through. It had been kind of secret. And, you know, I told her this and she said, Oh, so, so then you're, you're unemployed now. You can, you can join Good World. And of course, it's not that simple because we had the, the post acquisition, you know, kind of gates we had to go through. But I ended up being so inspired by the mission. Now had a little bit of cash in our pocket, you know, my family and I from the, from the acquisition. And it was life changing. It kind of solved these problems like college tuition and, and all these things that seemed looming. And now all of a sudden we were, we were in a really like stable position as a family. And that allowed me to think about, like, what if I could just do something I was really passionate about and I didn't have to pay myself? Uh, and it just, all these things came together. Like the timing again was random, but it was, it was perfect. I mean, you know, I'm Catholic background went to, you know, Catholic schools and, uh, you know, Jesuit educated, they're all about mission. Uh, and, and I'm like, wouldn't this be great to start a, a for-profit company that the, the more successful we are, the more good gets done in the world. And I could afford to take a little bit of a risk. Uh, for, you know, for some time. And that's what you know, we've been doing with, with Good World. But what I love most about Good World is not just the, the charity angle that compels me. Dale came from Rockefeller Foundation uh, before she, uh, you know, before we launched Good World in, in 15 together. And so she's always been, you know, or for, for many years, has been ensconced in the charity vertical. But for me, it's just kind of a personal passion. But I'm also very passionate about, you know, finance and economics and uh, you know, in payments. And so this was scratching both those itches. We could be doing good and we could also, you know, do something that could affect the way people pay for things. I mean, it was just, uh, again, kind of intoxicating, trying to make myself maybe more important than, uh, than I am again. But, you know, we're partnering with PayPal, we're partnering with MasterCard. Uh, you know, I think we've got a fighting chance to, to change the way people people pay for things, both the way they make charitable donations. That's plenty big vertical in and of itself. $410 billion in the United States alone was people, individuals giving to charities. Uh, and about 31 billion of that's online. And that's going quicker than anything, 23% up from last year. But when you start talking about peer to peer payments and online commerce, now you're talking about trillions yeah. uh, in the United States alone. So now it becomes very, very interesting. 
Uh, and we're, we're trying to get in the middle of that. I love it. Uh, so we've been talking to John Gossert from Good World and, and Ride Scout, of course. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. That cool, John? Sounds good to me. Awesome. Give you a chance to catch your breath. Today's episode of Veterans Startup Podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. They offer comprehensive PR services, and Publicize becomes a member of your team and can promote multiple PR announcements monthly. Check them out at publicize.co and tell them Carmen and Josh sent you. Uh, we've been talking to John Gossert from Good World. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about the idea behind Good World and how you really make this just a fric- frictionless, I could talk, watch, uh, opportunity for people to invest in and donate into their favorite charities. Uh, talk about some of the biggest charities you guys partner up with. Uh, we have uh, thousands of charities. We've got some of the biggest in the world. Uh, Save the Children, Compassion International, uh, Catholic Relief Services, Greenpeace, PETA, um, UN Foundation, UNICEF, United Way, and then you know thousands of dog shelters and, and poverty, local poverty charities, uh, disaster relief uh, that maybe you've never heard of. But um, what they all have in common, what, what we all, uh, almost all of us have in common now as organizations is that we're reaching out to, to the people that are our customers, or in this case, donors, uh, more and more through social media channels, because that's where they live. You know, no longer do people live in their email boxes, and they certainly don't live in their collateral mailboxes. Right. So if I'm spending most of my time on mobile and, uh, and social media, uh, that's where I'm going to get served the opportunity to make a consum- what we call a consumption choice. And depending on the study you read, three out of every four online purchases is directly a result of content that's served on social and mobile. Uh, And yet, we have almost $2 trillion in the United States every year of cart abandonment. That means I got served some sort of content, I clicked on it, but it started taking me somewhere else to have a secure transaction experience. And so I either, I went back, 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 or or I, I just didn't complete the form because you know, I want to stay where, where I was. Right. That's where I was inspired, and you're taking me somewhere else. So, you know, the conversion rate is is tiny. Now, it's a law of big numbers, so online commerce is huge, but most people, when they click on something, they, they don't convert. So the payments industry is trying to figure out how can we redirect those people in a way that's that's the least painful, that's the most seamless. And they're, you know, they're working on all these, how can we take you somewhere else in a way that, doesn't make you drop off. And we think that the the premise is fundamentally flawed at Goodwill. Why not let me have a secure, you know, seamless social transaction experience in the place where I was inspired in the first place? Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, inside a blog, uh, you know, or on a website where I'm, when I make that first click, I'm most likely to convert. So why not let me just have the transaction right there? We're going to market first in the, uh, in the, charitable giving vertical and that's where you know emotions run very high there and so yeah. you know our our conversion rate on facebook is above 63 percent. it's way out of market yeah it's, uh, it's that good and that's because we're, we're letting people just flip through their news feed they see a post that inspires them they comment hashtag donate they get a a comment right back from the nonprofit. it's our technology but it's coming from the nonprofit's handle or it could be coming from a celebrity handle because we have influencer technology as well and uh and they're getting that immediate like dopamine feedback. They feel good about themselves. Their friends and family see that I'm having a conversation with a charity or a celebrity. That they're seeing content that they otherwise wouldn't have seen, because you know you don't follow Save the Children, Josh, but but you and I are friends on Facebook. I'm making all this up, but uh, so so you're very likely to see my comment on the Save the Children post, but you're right. very unlikely to see a Save the Children post. And Save the Children is not paying to convey that content. Uh, and then, of course, the most important thing that's happening is when you say hashtag donate 10 or hashtag donate $10, uh, the credit card debit card's being charged, and that money's being bashed in ACH and sent straight uh, to the nonprofit coffers. Customized email receipt gets dropped in your uh, in your email box, whatever email you've got associated with your social media. Friends or family see it. Hopefully it inspires them to donate as well. Data dashboards updated, CRM integration, all that great stuff. So what? Uh, how much have you guys tra- – how much in funds have you guys – Transact transacted through your platform to the to date. So we just came out of our, our two year beta, 
And, uh, you know, we've done about three and a half million dollars in transactions. It's, it's relatively modest. Uh, but what we were doing was we were, we were testing the version one product market fit, focus group in that, the brand, everything. Uh, and then with the second tranche of capital, we completely rebuilt the platform, created the, the version two, did a complete rebranding exercise with a, uh, a great brand agency, uh, South Southwest out of Australia. Uh, and so now we've got what we believe is, you know, the, the ready to go to market at scale version of, uh, the good world technology across platforms. And, and now we're, we're linking arms with, you know, big partners like Twitter and, and PayPal. Uh, three million is not, not a small number to shake at through a beta, man. Well, I said three and a half million. But, yeah. <laughs> Even still, it's not, it's not, it's not huge. Um, you know, we've raised, uh, a little bit over 3 million in venture capital. So, uh, you know, our investors expect bigger and better things out of us and they should. Sure. Uh, and you know, and we're under pressure every day to deliver for them, to deliver for our nonprofit partners, uh, and donors and, and for ourselves. That's great. Uh, so I want to get back to something because you, you and I had a, t- a conversation, uh, before we jumped on air about what makes a veteran entrepreneur, a good, a good entrepreneur. What, what makes a vet a good entrepreneur? So you had some interesting take on this. I, I know we have like, I don't know, 10 minutes left, but I really want to dive into this because it's an interesting perspective. You know, you, you mentioned that not everybody that goes to the military uh, have the fundamental knowledge to come out and become a good entrepreneur. You know, I think that's true. First off, I would say, and I don't think this is very controversial, what makes a great veteran entrepreneur is the same thing that makes a great entrepreneur. Sure. So, I mean, full stop. Uh, there's there's very little about, uh, maybe very little is, is, is too much. Um, there are only a few things specific to your military experience that potentially make you better suited for entrepreneurial life than, um, than anybody else that might come at it from different sectors, I think. Um, you know, certainly like we put a big premium on leadership. Obviously I think that's, that's good, but I don't think you necessarily need a prolific leader, uh, at a startup. This might be blasphemy until the startup's big enough to need a prolific leader. I agree. You know, uh, so, so that's one thing. One, uh, some of the organization and checklist mentality and planning, you know, kind of meticulousness that comes from, from certain parts of, uh, serving in the military, I think serve you very well. But some of those things also bite you. I mean, that same meticulousness can cause you to, you know, kind of be on the outside. When I first started, uh, you know, with, with Ride Scout, I was, well, first of all, Steve Carroll, I used to sit at my dining room table at 630 in the morning because we didn't realize that in startup land, you don't start at 630 in the morning at your, at your dining room table. And we're like, okay, we'd like flip open the laptops and we're like, startup, you know, crack knuckles. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to be emailing somebody? I certainly can't call anybody at 6.30 in the morning. Like, what exactly am I supposed to be doing? But when, when there was somebody to email in those early days, I found myself, as hours went by, getting annoyed that I wasn't getting an email back. Because, you know, the professional courtesy in military and government is you get an email back in 24 hours. Yeah. And I'm like, mm-hmm. the nerve of these guys. And I would find myself, you know, two days later being like, I'm going to assume you didn't get this or, you know, something snide. And that's only guaranteeing that, you know, they don't want to do business with you. And they, you know, they're, now they're, they're really not going to reply to you. Um, <laughs> and it took me a while to realize that you'll get, you know, in, in the world that I live in now, when I get the reply three weeks later from, you know, some exec at, at Twitter, they're going to say, Hey, great to hear from you. Yeah. Let me take a look at this. Let's set something up. They, they're they're going to answer that. Like they just got it. <laughs> Uh, it's a different time horizon. It's a different culture. And so you got to know what things do I check at the door when I leave the military? Uh, because they're either not relevant or even worse, they're, they're not helpful. They're detrimental. And what things, you know, it's a smaller set of, of things do I bring with me because they can actually help me. And I think the biggest thing that helps you coming out of vet world or coming out of, you know, military world is, uh, learning to live in austere conditions. And I don't mean the, you know, the baker shop or the butcher shop repurposed that we lived in in Sauter city. I'm talking about, uh, most missions that you get in garrison or in the field, in the military, you are under-resourced 
and you're given too many tasks with too few people and too few resources. And, you know, it is your responsibility, especially as a commander, to say, I don't have the resources to do this mission. And then it's your, your commander's responsibility to tell you, I understand that. I still need you to do that. And so now you find yourself, how can I... Uh, remember that Apollo 13 scene in the movie where they, they dump all the stuff on the table. They dump all the shit on the table and they go, okay, here's the problem. Like, you know, we need to make this fit into this and we only have these things. He dumps like, you know, four random pieces on a table. And it's like, there's, there's no way to solve that problem. And yet, you know, they did. Yeah. And, and there are guys out in the field, you know, I saw it firsthand on an almost daily basis where we gave our young leaders like those problems and they figured them out. Mm -hmm. And that is a skill that I think that translates very well into the entrepreneurial world. But the thing that we knew even in Sutter city was we were getting paid at the end of the month. It came from this magic place <laughs> and we never questioned it. Yeah. And I can tell you every time payroll goes out in good world, I know it because I watched the balance of a real bank account with real dollars. That's got my name on it go down. And that's a, I mean, that's something that you do not appreciate in the military and sure. in government. So, you know, these people that go, you know, I'm a, you know, I've been deployed. I know about initiative and, you know, I'm a vet, so I'm going to, I'm going to thrive in this world. Um, the thing that keeps me up at night is my bank balance every night yeah. uh, at Good World. And, uh, it, and that's not something that the military, you know, prepares you for at all. No. No, we, yeah, no, you're right. And I, I here's here's my input into into what you just said. I don't disagree with any of that because here's here's the thing: the veteran entrepreneurs that I meet, they were not only officers, but they were enlisted. Some of the best ones were enlisted. Some of them were just grunts, right? Like I was a deck seaman, right? And I'm two time entrepreneur, so it right. doesn't really matter what your what your skill set was, what your mo was, what your rank nope. was. It really is if you have these fundamental skills that just sort of were brought out. Uh, in a better way through the military, they're going to right. serve you well when you get out into the. And guess what? They were going to be brought out if you had become a school teacher, or sure. they were going to be brought out if you had become like a you know like a corporate business leader or a construction worker. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, and these I, things are inherent in the people. Yeah, like before and after they serve. And and I think the thing that is unique to the to the military experience is, are things like this. You know, at, tell me if I'm wrong. When when you go into a, say a corporate environment and there's somebody freaking out because of some small issue you don't freak out about it because you know you've had you've gone through some shit right so your level of context about the things that stress you out are far different than someone that hasn't been through that experience we have a nice saying at good world when like the the walls are caving in on us uh, and usually you're right it's uh, but it helps us with perspective we say nobody's shooting now i don't have any nobody's shooting at us right uh and that's something i brought because we don't have uh, uh other vets although i've had a couple of interns that uh that have been vets but uh, it does give good perspective. Like, nobody's shooting at us. Uh, so, like, how bad c can it really be? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that does. It gives you, it does give you a little bit of perspective. But I know we only got a couple minutes left. I do want to get this out. Yeah. I think that, that it is dangerous for us as a country to, to perpetuate this narrative that anyone that has ever worn the uniform for a couple of years or for 20-some years uh, is a hero that should walk out and become a VP at an established company or is, you know, guaranteed to be a successful entrepreneur and that we should all put our, uh, resources behind, uh, this man or woman, you know, because, uh, because they served. I mean, we should have respect and, and I certainly do for people that serve. And there are certainly those skills that, that they can bring with them that, that make them better at doing some of these things. But some people uh, are not, you know, suited you know, for certain things. There, there's, you know, 99.9% .9 of the things in the world I'm not suited for. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable enough for. Uh, and even the current venture that I'm in, you know, time will tell. It might turn out that I'm not capable enough to do this. But I think it's very dangerous if we're letting people walk out of the military thinking that they're owed, uh, you know, a corporate job or that they're owed money from venture capitalists. Sure. You better have an idea that addresses a real uh, interesting, addressable market. Uh, your timing better be good. And, and even, you know, all that, you still might fail. But if you don't have those things, I mean, you know, the, you, you can't wave the flag and get money from Sequoia. I agree. I totally I agree. agree as well. Yeah. Hey, uh, where can people find you, John? 
Uh, I mean, you can find me on now all over social media, uh, John Gossard on, on Twitter and, uh, and Facebook and, and certainly good world at good world on all your social medias and, uh, and good world.me. Um, so, uh, please feel free to reach out. I'm at John at good world.me. So I always go out my, my email address. I'm, I'm a pretty accessible person. I love it, John. Thank you so much for spending the, last, the uh, hour with us. Like I said, I knew it was going to go by quick and I wish we had more time we got to have you on again. Uh, but thank you so much. Thank I appreciate you, John. it. That was very Thanks insightful. for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, you've been listening to the Startup Radio Network, the network that brings inspiration and education to startups and entrepreneurs around the globe. Tune in again next week and every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Listen, learn, and get shit done. We'll see you guys next week. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.